how are you doing dry January? I am. I had a little relapse, I must confess. Uh, Only because we had friends over for dinner the other night. It's just excuses. And I offered a beer. And if I'd have known that uh, Matey only had, he only had one beer all evening. See, and if I'd have known that, I probably would have stuck to the non-alcoholic. But I thought, I'd be so sure. You've got to set yourself goals and stick to them. I know, it's shocking. But I heard of this concept of damp January. Well, I'll tell you where you heard of that concept. (laughs) In the pub. We're in the pub. (laughs) Last Friday, team drinks in the pub down the corner, on the corner. And the barman clearly had this line rehearsed, ready for anybody coming in saying, I don't want to drink. Yeah. Uh, damp January. Well, I resisted then. You did. You saw through that. I had a beer. Mrs. Buckle cracked like, crack like a dry twig. Did not take long at all to <laughs> crack. I did take some responsibility. For <laughs> so, um, but yeah, but then... Damp January. So, but I'm back on it now. I have discovered um, there's a lot of good non-alcoholic beers now. There's, like, there's, As we often talk about. I had... Uh, the Lefe or Lef or however it's pronounced. Lefe, Lefe. yeah, maybe. No, I've said it. Their Zero is very, very good. Right, okay. I also had the Peroni, non-alcoholic. No, I'm not, not I actually alcoholic. quite enjoyed that. I had it with a lasagna the other evening. Yeah. My, my worry more is this absolute devotion to the dry January when you know, everything in moderation, including moderation itself. So every now and again. <laughs> <laughs> moderation squared. Yeah, perfect. All right, well, anyway. it's January then, isn't it? Oh, we no. better crack on with... Uh, uh, second podcast of the year. Hello, here we are again for the SME Growth Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We're from Wellmeadow and I'm Dave Parry and this is Rich Buckle. Hey, Rich. Hi. Here we are again talking about things that hopefully are interest to uh, business leaders and, and managers and owners looking to grow their businesses. So we've got a good packed episode today with some interesting stats that we're going to share f- we'll share with you. Uh, just got a couple of things they want to update you on just on the news, just because what's going around at the moment. So a um, couple of things I've picked up, Rich, not sure what you picked up, but yesterday inflation figures inflation were announced. figures, yeah. See that? Went the wrong way, apparently. Went the wrong way by 0.1 of point a percent one. or something. And haven't we talked about this every podcast? Every 0.1 percentage point move is picked up by journalists as if it really matters. And it's just a load of numbers that statisticians add up and it comes yeah. up with a slightly different number. So, so it went from 3.9 to 4 instead of what they expected it to go down to 3.8. The bit that made me laugh, though, is they said it was an unexpected rise and the biggest contributor was the rise in tobacco duty. Mm, so, so did so tobacco duty just <laughs> unexpectedly <laughs> rise? Yeah. <laughs> Someone yeah. must have thought about that back in the autumn statement, maybe. Does that mean yeah. more people are smoking now? Or is it is it a volume thing or a price? Is it a I don't think more people are smoking. Do they charge duty on vapes? Don't know. It can't be. It hasn't got tobacco in it, has it? No. Unless it's a nicotine duty. Mm. So anyway, anyway, the unexpectedly but obviously planned several months ago rise in duty yeah. helped drive inflation up a little bit. The, the important thing, though, is the um, producer prices index, which is what companies have to pay for all their raw materials. That yeah. went down. Down by 2.6%. Latest mm. So it just says it's all coming so it's down. The, the gradual thing, we had a big shock a little while ago. Yeah. It's all unwinding. So don't panic, everybody. Don't panic. <laughs> Inflation's still higher than you like it, but it's on its way down, even if it went up by... Well, it's kind of arbitrary 2% target anyway, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's just, it's, um, Gordon Brown, wasn't it, years ago? You know. It's that was that. And then, you know, I'm, I'm always annoyed by this uh, creeping feeling that recessions are caused by journalists writing about recessions. Mm. So have you ever used Google Trends? Do you yes. Use much? I, use, yeah. 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 I don't know if many of our listeners have heard of it. You type in a word and it tells you how many times that word or phrase has been searched yeah. for. So I typed in the word recession in the UK context. And there was a massive spike, as you can imagine, back around COVID time. Yep. 
Then there was another massive spike when uh, the oil prices went up in around about, was it August, September 22, six months on from mm. the um, Ukraine invasion and what was it, all the price cap discussion. Yep. That. So it went all crazy then. The growth figures didn't change a job, by the way. Mm. <laughs> it was just, there's yeah. a lot of talking about it. And then since then, flat's a pancake. Hardly anybody talking about recession. So I'm still on my journalist watch. I'm mm. still okay. I haven't got any any journalists in my sights for talking up a recession just yet. But I think we're just a little bit away until the next GDP figures come out. And if that goes, remember we said before with the revision of the figures mm. we talked about yeah, yeah, last week, yeah. we're on the cliff edge of a technical recession. So they'll all jump on. So can we talk pile. ourselves into growth? If we can talk ourselves into a recession. You know, if we had a positive, we, a positive media, new, yeah. we might be able to do that. Yeah. But unfortunately, good news doesn't sell. People have tried it, haven't they? Good mm. news only newspapers and stuff. Nobody buys them. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Not exciting at all. Gosh, yeah. yeah. So anyway, that was my uh, news for the week. News for the week. A little jingle for that. Right, so this week's then, uh, prompted by uh, an HBR podcast that came out on Boxing Day. And just to reassure listeners, I wasn't listening to it on Boxing Day. I did have family around. We would <laughs> do my life. But I picked it up later. And it was referring to an old podcast they did five years ago. Yeah. Which is also interesting because our podcast last week was uh, a reissue of something we'd done before. Sneaky. Sneaky. Got some feedback. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, they were referring back to something they did back in 2017, 2018. And they were talking about some research by a consultancy in America called GH Smart. Never heard of them, but I'm sure they're very good. And they'd done a lot of interviews with CEOs to try and work out what the key behaviours were of successful CEOs. Yeah. So hence, today's episode is all about that. What are the key behaviours of successful CEOs? Does it work? Does it, does it not? So they came up with their four, and you could argue whether they're a good four or the bad four, but they yep. came up with some surprising findings. So we'll talk about them. No, and I think it's lest we think this is uh, just about CEOs of PLCs or... Uh, huge companies this is quite applicable across SMEs as well as any leader if you're in the leadership position what do you think of a CEO would you rather call them managing directors or are you a CEO on the CEO fence I don't know is there a difference I think it's just it's the American semantic. and British version of the same thing isn't it but a lot of tech firms like using CEOs it sounds trendy, doesn't it yeah but if we're going to stay true to our British English roots and not let American English invade managing director should call managing directors. but you're absolutely right for SMEs it's whoever's the leadership yeah. person or leadership team. Key behavioural traits. So we came up with um, a little bit of a list. I think we're going to cover yep. top five today, see how that goes out. See what we do. So the top one, maybe not surprising uh, about having a vision, a strategic vision. You know where you're going. You've got to know where you're going. What's the point of having someone steering if um, they don't know where they're going? Yep, exactly. And at my oft-quoted proverb. On, I've been waiting for this. Proverb 29. About without a vision, the people perish. And I think no truer word been spoken when it comes to talking about True. vision. I think what we've what we've seen over working with 100 plus SMEs is that you could probably distinguish those companies where there's been a strong vision, regardless of what that vision is or not, but just the fact that there is a vision versus those companies where they don't take it seriously because oftentimes it's seen as being a bit fluff or... Yeah. There is a difference over time. It may not be one of those things that's noticed in you know twelve months, six to twelve months, but over a course of maybe five years, mm. you can very clearly see the difference in results between those companies where they've really focused on we're going to set our stall out to grow and we're going to set our stall out to do X, Y, Z, 
this is where we're heading versus those companies that don't take it seriously and tend to just flatline. Well, they just treat tomorrow like another version of today or yeah. you know, carry on, don't they? It's easy that way. Yeah. But I think you're right. That, you know, there's that phrase, if you have a vision without a plan, it's just a dream. Yeah. I'm not sure that's always true, is it? A lot of strategic decisions are taken because an opportunity arises and you know if you've got a clear vision that it either fits your vision or it doesn't. You don't have to have had a plan for an opportunity to crop up. But I think those companies where they have a strong vision, it almost engenders a different culture. Now we're going straight into a culture discussion. Mm. But, but I think if you've got that, this is where we're clearly going, this is what, you know, and, and maybe it's not so defined that there's, there's, you know, wiggle room. If an opportunity comes along, you're in a much better position to capitalise on it mm. than if you don't ever think about the future. You don't, you're always thinking yeah. about what's just in front of me, the next step. Opportunity comes along. You haven't got the people around you. You haven't got the resources. You haven't got the capital. You haven't got all this other stuff to actually take advantage of it. Yeah. So I would say that that vision piece is absolutely critical. And from the leader's point of view, which is how it comes across then for everybody else to build those plans around it. There was an interesting finding that was talked about in the podcast that leaders tend to have a much wider angled lens when they look at the world. Yeah. They have more information inputs. They talk to more different people, especially outside of their industry or or what it is that they're related to in, in their particular business. Mm. So that, I think that's almost a prerequisite. If you're going to be a good leader, you need inputs. You need to be listening and focused on the outside world yeah. very broadly. So I quite like that, that notion that leaders have a wider angled lens. Why don't let, yeah. And internally focused people have got a much more, you know, telephoto lens focusing right in on the on the day job. Well, there's that phrase in there around, you know, for are you on the are you on the dance floor or are you, are, are you on the dance floor or are you on the balcony? Yeah. And if leaders end up on the dance floor, it's very hard to see what's going on. Whereas, you know, if you can get up on the balcony, you're watching everybody else dancing. You know, that's yeah. where I tend to be. Although it depends what song's playing. To <laughs> you're be the fair. wallflower. You stand at the side of the disco. <laughs> no, I can't help myself. It's I'm shocking. going to a, a, a dance floor with a balcony. I don't know, Blackpool ballroom. Yeah, exactly. In my mind, there's this certain thing. There's some kipper ties and some stuff going on. But yeah. you get the point. You've got to you've got to get some yeah. perspective. Get that helicopter that view. That metaphor. Yeah, helicopter view. Now, some people listening have heard me say that too often. The forty thousand foot view. Forty thousand foot. The other one I use is if you're down in the engine room, making sure that the ship's running nicely. That's great. But who's up on the bridge deciding you know yeah. to avoid the icebergs? So you've got to be up there. Uh, and a bit sort of slightly related, but it worries me sometimes when I see chief execs or MDs, I should also say, uh, clinging to tools which they can use as a crutch for their thinking. Mm. I think a lot of this is innate. You just have to have an instinct for where the opportunities are, where your competitors are moving. You know, imagine it's like a chessboard. There's a, mm. there's a, it's crowded over there, but it's empty over there, but there's no customers there either. Yeah. You know, where am I going? Why? What are we good at? And all this sort of stuff. And yet people try to lean on SWOT analysis or PESTEL analysis or an ANSOF matrix. You know, and people who know about these things, great, mm. good on you, but you don't have to know about them. Mm. And one of the bits of research that came out from this consultancy was that there were as many, if not slightly more successful CEOs, business leaders in America anyway, that hadn't had any formal education at all, let alone in business, as they were that had been to the Ivy League universities and yep. were coming out supposedly with, you know, Harvard MBA. Well, nothing against a Harvard MBA. If you got one, well done. That's brilliant. I'm sure you're a better leader mm. for it. That's great. But it's not a prerequisite. No. And you can have a, a strategic vision without having all the tools and the fancy words. Just have an yep. instinct for, for business and how to help 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 customers. Well was there not something as well around the 
having failed as well. There was something in the research there around was. that. Wasn't now it? that I was going to think about what did that relate to of all these behavioural traits, but it's probably a resilience type thing. Mm. But that was a great example, and maybe this is another podcast for us, of where the selection process for business leaders was completely out of alignment with the things that make you successful yeah. once you're there. And so they say that the C-suite execs who are looking, they're in the tunnel, they're in that window of next promotion will be mm. the chief exec. They try and keep their nose clean. Yeah. They try to do nothing risky. You don't want any failures, no you know, blot on their CV. And yet in practice, most successful chief execs business leaders have had some pretty major career blow up in the past. So yeah. says GH Mark from their, from their research. Well, I think that does tie into the vision piece, isn't it? Because if you're looking at a vision as a 10, 20 year view of your life or your business or whatever it is, you're going to you're gonna have some failures in that period. Yeah. And if you can't, and the point of a vision is to be that North Star that every time you fail or every time something doesn't go quite the way you planned, you get yourself up and you keep going forward and you move in, in that direction. Mm. Um, which is, you know, I'm always saying this to my kids. It's like sort of fail your way to success. Because We've you've, you've, you've got to have a yeah. big enough view of what your life can be that if something goes wrong today, it's not catastrophic. Yeah. Well, yeah. if there's a stat that successful businesses tend to be after four, five, six failed businesses, that's just how entrepreneurs work. That's where the phrase failure way to success yeah. comes from. You've got to get through the failures. Yeah. And maybe there's a metaphor there that would you rather be driven by someone who has had an accident in the past so they're more wary or the 17-year-old driver that's got no experience and mm. hasn't ever had an accident, or even a mature driver that's driven so cautiously, never had an accident, but never maximised life, yeah. never taken things you know closer to the edge to, to achieve yeah. what can be achieved. We can all be safe, can't we? Exactly. The, the only person that doesn't make any mistakes is the person who doesn't do anything. So, interesting finding. So there's a lot about strategic vision there. Yeah. I think it's no surprise that that is a key trait of successful chief execs. You've got to know where you're going. Well, I think, I think there's a misunderstanding maybe of what a vision is. So a vision is not just something that you write down. A vision is something that you're going to live and breathe for the next 20 years. So it's got to be something that, it's got to be somewhere you want to go and it's got to be something that's going to inspire everybody to come with you. So it's, it's so much more than a piece of paper with a few words written down on it. It's got to be the embodiment of everything about your business, not just today, but where it's going to be in the next 20 years. Yeah, I would agree. And SMEs also fall into the, to, to the trap of thinking a vision is about the vision statement. Yeah. And they think of it as going away in a hotel and crafting a pithy sentence which absolutely encapsulates what they're trying to do. Almost a complete waste of time, especially if you then go and put it on the wall in reception. I think, well, yeah, exactly. And I think bringing this back to sort of the actual CEO or MD, that vision has got to be embodied authentically within that person. There's no good. And I think this is where the, the probably justified criticism comes, where people see a vision on the wall. This is what, you know who we are and values and whatever, but they don't see that embodied in the leadership. It's not. It's not. It's not believable. It's not authentic. Talk, right? So you know, if you can, this is about authentic leadership embodying the vision, so yeah. that people see it and are inspired by it and want to follow it. All right, I'll finish off the vision bit by just referring people to an earlier podcast we did on the whole vision thing. And if you are interested in that more academic way of going about it and Collins Porus frameworks yep. and all that sort of thing, then we talked about that in an earlier podcast, probably about a year ago now. But anyway, there's there's material out there for that. We point you to that. Right, next one then. Number two. This is where I feel we need that music they used to have on top of the pops. Yes. <laughs> This week's oh, this is way before your time. Way before my time. When there was such a thing as radio, and you had to listen. 
to get the music. It's like the talkies. <laughs> the t- <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, EI. EI, emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence. So Not to be another. confused with, so EQ is sometimes emotional quotient is sometimes referred to. Ah, same thing? Same thing, I okay. think. So you get this kind of EQ versus IQ debate. Yep. So you can often have people with high IQ in a position of leadership that do or don't have enough EQ. But apparently the big talk around this at the moment is it's something that AI can't easily replicate. Yes. You couldn't have a robot running a business. So whilst the IQ of AI can increase exponentially and will do, Mm -hmm. if uh, you believe where this is all heading. Yeah. The EQ is much more difficult to um, it's a very, manipulate. It's a very human AI. thing, isn't it? Emotional intelligence. And it applies as much to understanding oneself, keeping your own emotions in check and yep. responding appropriately, not overreacting, but having focus and emotion yep. and energy. But obviously people think of it more the other way around, which is being able to understand how others are feeling. Yep. So I totally get it that this is really important for a chief exec. You've got to, un- you've got to read the room. You've got to make sure you get the best out of your team. You've got to work out when things are going wrong. But it can go too far, can't it? Would you agree? Or do you think it's universally be as emotional and empathetic as you can? Um, Yeah, I think it can go too far. I think there's a very interesting book, um, piece of work done by Kim Scott called Radical Candor, which addresses this issue. Um, If you're interested, there's a very good masterclass session on it. Um, If you're into masterclass recommend it okay very good for your learning um as an aside but she has a matrix where she talks about um sort of on the one axis how much you directly challenge people and on the other axis how much you care personally so if you went you can end up caring too much about people and then not challenging directly and she calls that ruinous empathy so where you want to be is up in the radical candor where you really do genuinely care, but you are able to challenge directly. And that's where I think that emotional intelligence piece comes in because you know where to balance those things. It's a, it's a hell of a balance, though. It's a tightrope, isn't it? There was um, a bit of research done in 2018. Harms uh, was the author, The Role of Emotional Intelligence in Leadership. And one of the findings that they came up with was that if you are very highly developed on emotional intelligence, it's correlated sometimes with the inability to take tough decisions. Mm. And I was thinking about that. And if you imagine all those family firms we deal with, how often have they not done taken a decision, especially yep. a tough decision, because they are acutely aware of the impact it's going to have on you know yep. the employees' families or maybe their friends, maybe in their own family that is yep. employed in the business, or just long time you know colleagues of twenty years. How yep. do you how do you agree with a restructuring decision that might put a colleague of twenty years out of work? Yeah, it might be the right thing for the business, and then you've got to challenge yourself. Well, what's my role here? Am I supposed to be as as my director's duty in law mm. is to promote the success of the business? What happens if concerns like that about just yeah. what about my brother-in-law who's involved or you know the next door neighbour or something? Yeah, you've got so to see that's an interesting research. Yeah. It's not universally um, a good thing. Uh, the other thing that came out a bit like that, I'm not sure it's really emotional intelligence, but the the HBR podcast I was talking about had some research on introvert extrovert, okay, and it was one of their surprising findings. So they said that there there are more introverts who are successful CEOs in the US than there are extroverts. They didn't quite go as far to say you have to be an introvert to be successful. <coughs> but they, they weren't able to interview most of them, were they? 
couldn't get hold of them. <laughs> didn't respond to their phone calls. I'm a self-confessed introvert, by the way, before everyone starts writing in and beating me up. Do they often write in and beat you up? No, no. <laughs> not really. You're okay. I think you're okay on that one. Yeah. And the point they were trying to make is that there's a common perception that extroverts are likely to be better leaders. Mm. And it's just not true. It's not borne yeah. out by the data. Introverts are actually, if anything, marginally more likely to be successful leaders than extroverts are. Well, a lot of it, to, you know, for me, it was a bit of a revelation to, to say it's, it's more about where you get your energy from, isn't it? Do you get your energy from being around other people in a room mm. and all of that? That's very much more an extrovert trait, whereas yeah. an introvert needs to get time away from people. It doesn't mean you can't talk in public. It doesn't mean you can't interact with people. It just means that where you recharge is normally on your own yeah. in a dark room, curled up in a fetal position. So <laughs> I recognise you there. <laughs> So the point they're making is that it's not really about whether you're introvert or extrovert. It's other things matter yeah. more. And we talked about emotional intelligence. You need enough of it, but be aware that sometimes even with all your empowered understanding of how other people are feeling, you might still have to take a tough decision that isn't in their best interest. And I think then as a leader, you've got to, you've almost got to do that self, um, self-awareness check on you know how how good it, everyone everyone thinks they're a better than average driver, right? It's that yeah. type of thing. Yeah. So everyone thinks they're emotionally intelligent, mm. um, or better than more emotionally intelligent than the average person, um, but that simply can't be true. So, okay. so you've got to again, it's back to that being authentic and honest with yeah. yourself and asking for feedback from other people. And I do know some very empathetic, some absolutely lovely people that I work with as clients, and I'm honoured to be able to do so. But I think sometimes even they would admit that they are sometimes hampered in their ability to take yeah. fast or tough decisions. Now, I can't decide at this point whether to move on to the next topic or not. Uh, that's why we need the sound effects. We've got a drum. Insert drum roll. Rim shot. So the next one is decisiveness. Decisiveness. And what I loved about the research on this is that it actually defined decisiveness, or had a mm. little bit of a stab at it, as speed of decision-making times quality of decision. And, you know, as a consultant, you love a little formula. Little formula. You know, a little way of... How do they measure the quality of decision? I suppose if you wait long enough and you have the outcome, and I bet yeah. you it was self-assessed <laughs> in the survey. How good are you at making decisions? Do they always work out okay? Yeah. So yeah, speed and decision and, and quality. Sorry. And, and I think the point they're making here is that if you're measuring someone on their leadership ability more than other things, then people like being led by a leader. That's what they're there for. That's mm. what generates followship. And we've heard yeah. that phrase before. And you can't really be a leader if you stand in the middle saying, I don't know where I want to go. Yeah. Or what do you think? It's a very well to be, you know, consensus-based management, but that's not very leading. Mm. Is it? You can't imagine Napoleon having a bit of a chat with the generals. Should we attack or not? I don't know. Let's have a cup of tea and think about it. It's management by committee. Should we go it? to Moscow? Just, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's management by committee. So I think whether you're right or wrong, and they did by putting the quality of decision bit in their formula, they've sort of said, don't mm. just make fast decisions and get them all wrong. It's not about just speed. But if there's a trade-off, then speed probably matters more than most people think, and quality probably matters less than most people think. I think we've seen over the years probably a real, again, a, just a bit like the vision thing, that that ability or inability probably is more the correct phrase, to make decisions. To let's leave it till the next meeting. Let's mm. let's kick that can down the road. Or I'm thinking you know. someone straight away who I won't name, <laughs> blushes who who almost had a mantra that don't decide on something if you can delay the decision. Mm. I, I just fundamentally disagree with that mantra. But that yeah. was a very heartfelt 
opinion that that particular director held. I think over time, that lack of decisiveness becomes very corrosive because if it's not, if it, that will filter through the entire organization. Yeah. Back um, to the vision thing. Decide where you want to go and then make the key decisions at the right times which help you get there rather than just sort of floating. Well, I think there may be the, there's maybe a link as well between that vision and, you know, if you think about strategy as well. So vision is you know, where you want to where you want to get to, where you want to you know, where you want to go. And if that strategy piece is around that kind of diagnostic and having those guiding principles to say this is this is how we're going to get there. Mm. If you haven't got any of that articulated or formulated, yeah. making decisions becomes very difficult because what are those those tools in terms of the vision and strategy give you the framework for making decisions. Mm -hmm. Is this in line with our values? Is this going to help us move towards the vision? Is this going to help us, you know, get to where we need to get to? If you don't know where you're going to get to, if you haven't thought about what your values are and how you're going to do it, it's very hard. You're making, you're almost trying to make decisions in a vacuum. Yeah. Um, and as we know, nature abhors a vacuum. So it, it, what ends up happening is... Well, something else will fill its place. Something else will fill it. Either the um, status quo or inertia or an opportunity will come along which doesn't fit, but people will see it as a shiny new thing and do it yeah. anyway and lead you down sort of the wrong decision. And I've seen so many decisions made that go wrong, but at least they were decisions. I think they should have had a bit more thinking about them. Yeah. But the argument goes better to make a decision quickly that turns out badly, but then react. So they, they paired this in their research saying, yes, it is about speed and quality of decision making, mm. but it also needs to be paired with this ability to revise your decisions yeah. when new facts come to light. You know, it's that phrase you sometimes hear politicians mm. say, I reserve the right to change my mind if mm. the facts change. Well, I heard um, something Jeff Bezos was saying the other day about this. Oh, your mate Jeff. My mate yeah. Jeff. Um, my kids all know. My my kids always go on about Jeff Bezos. Do they? Do they it's call weird. him by his first name. Jeff or Jeffrey Bezos because there was a song. There's a meme song about him. About oh, I see. It's very popular. Is this how education works now? If if it's in a meme, kids will know it. Yeah. Forget what the teachers. Forget say. what the teachers say. If they taught, if they had a meme school, You'd I'm sure they would get straight <laughs> A's because it's um. But it's just interesting how the CEO of uh, you know an online shop essentially <laughs> is is that's a, playing it out a bit. But it's playing no, but I mean if you if you're a reductionist about it, that's is is well known you know i can't remember when i was a kid knowing who any ceo was of any no. business it was just like no, your heroes were sports maybe people steve jobs maybe bill gates maybe but if you go back a bit further further than that it's you know yeah you couldn't have named the whereas, chief exec you know, of glaxo smith klein no. or bp or so the big companies of the world yeah. so anyway but he was what he was saying was quite interesting about one way one-way doors and two-way doors when it comes to decisions. So mm. if you've got a decision that's very, very hard to reverse, maybe, I don't know, moving factory or yep. things like that, that's that's not the sort of thing that you want to rush into. You want to slow that process down, be methodical, get all the data around you, and, and make sure that you take that decision. Because it's a one-way door. System. It's a one-way door. You can't, you can't easily flick a switch or you, know, you can't easily walk back out of that door. So go through one-way doors slowly and two-way doors quickly. Well, the two-way door is where you can you can reverse that. It's, it's you know it's not insurmountable, or it's actually quite easy to walk back in and walk back out the way you came. Undo the decision. Undo the decision. Start again. Now, and and I think probably decide. You know, maybe it's a bit self-evident which which ones which is a one-way door decision and which yeah. is a two-way door decision. Something like moving factory, moving office, they're, they're fairly major. Well, we've got a client at the moment considering that exact thing, yeah. moving into a factory twice the size nearby, 
it's needed because they're outgrowing their current space, but they're acutely aware that if the market turns down or the political situation changes because yep. of their market, Suddenly that's a one-way door. Your break-even is going yeah. to increase. You've got to well, think about, okay, how do we how do we manage all of this? There's, there's all sorts of other considerations you've got to think about, whereas I suppose, you know, what's a two-way door? Run an ad campaign with a landing page or something. Yes. Let's have a decide, you know, should we get into this? Should we test this market quickly? Okay, yeah. run a little campaign to see what happens. Oh, it didn't work. Okay, you can back well, out of that easy. Developing a new product. Yeah. Know, if it doesn't work, as long as it hasn't cannibalized your existing product, it's something truly different and new, then yeah, you can try that and cancel it, can't you? Cancel so it's answer. interesting, you know, you could you could almost have that as a, if you're making it, if you're sitting as a board, you could say, well, okay, uh, is this a one-way mm. one door, two-way door decision? Yeah. And we approach those differently because a two-way door decision, you could say, right, let's just get on with it then. Yeah. Like, do it faster. Do it fast. Get on. Based get on the information, done. if you had to flip a coin now or make a gut feel now, are you going to go for it? Now, while you're talking about your mate Jeff, he's just issued his shareholder letter and mm. he talks a little bit about decision making in that. I don't know how it's cropped up. I didn't read the whole letter, but he says if you're if you make a decision when you've got about seventy percent of the data, then that's probably about the sweet spot. Mm. If you're waiting until you've got ninety percent of the data, you're too yep. slow. You missed the boat. Yeah. That's quite interesting. How many times do we always wait until we've got at least 90% of the data? You know, people are so risk averse, they want to be absolutely mm. sure, never really move. It may be good to have that person in your quality department or even in your finance yep. department, but as the leader of the organization, mm. maybe not. Maybe that's why so few finance directors end up being chief execs. They're good number twos, mm. and it's a rare beast, and we know a couple yep. that make that jump. Well, it's down to, you know, how much data do you need to have around you? Before you make a decision. Yep. So how are we getting on through our list then? We've done strategic vision, emotional intelligence, decisiveness. Um, so come back to this in another podcast. Next one is uh, adaptability and flexibility. Yeah, and we've got great examples through years of working with SMEs of where companies have adapted mm. and some where they haven't adapted. Yep. Uh, there's one you know, classic one that I think jumped to mind when we were thinking about this earlier great um, automotive supplier client of ours that was very heavily invested in the internal combustion engine. And as we all know in the world at the moment, there's a, this trend of electric vehicles. In fact, figures in the news this morning across Europe, 15% of all new cars in Europe last year were electric. Mm. So massive change. And they adapted. They um, Almost without missing a beat, really. Mm. Just as, as if it was the most natural thing ever. I'm sure internally it wasn't this easy. But they just presented themselves much more with, of course, our help on yeah. the marketing and messaging. But to say, no, we, we do electric vehicle stuff too. Yeah. And it, their customers just, yeah, of course you do, fine. And and they moved on. There was clearly a transition, new things to learn. It, was, it wasn't as easy as I described. But but the, the adaptation was made, thank goodness. Yeah. But others, and we were talking about the legal sector generally rather than naming any particular firm, but you've got war stories aplenty of how you've tried to change some of those and I think there are there are some great examples of innovation within the legal sector and I think there's you know there's a lot of use of AI to mm. to do research and you know document prep and things like that there's a lot of push towards paperless offices and you know all those sorts of things um, so there is some really interesting innovation but there's also what we've seen is this kind of almost head in the sand approach in some cases to you know, the legal sector is always going to be like it's always always has been, and mm -hmm. and sadly, I just don't think that is so. Really, it's there's there's a lot of external pressures 
on the legal sector, particularly, so as we're talking more kind of maybe high street firms and things. Yeah, provincial firms rather than the big city. The firms. big city firms, but they adapted much much better. I think what the shame of it is for the legal profession as a whole, for any lawyers listening, I'd blame the SRA, the Solicitors Regulation Authority, and indeed the the Law Society that they helped change rules, which completely changed the landscape of of the legal service provision in the mm-hmm. country, allowing non-lawyers to practice in all sorts of areas like conveyancing yeah. and, and will writing. And the high streets firms didn't change. They just yeah. carried on as they were. And I think part of the problem there is their leadership, if you're talking about here, tended to be older, more experienced, wizened people who knew how it used to work and they were applying the templates from yesteryear. Well, I think it's a, it's a resource thing as well. I think, you know, a lot of high street firms, you, you became a partner because you were a good fianna. Mm-hmm. And that was what, elevated you to partner status yeah well if you if you're a primary fee owner mm. but you've also got to now take on the responsibilities of leadership you've got to take on the responsibility of managing the firm all of the new compliance that comes in aml or everything like that all of a sudden it's like that's a full-time job for maybe one or two people that just don't exist anti-money laundering for anybody AML, yeah. not with AML. but yeah. the and also you, so then yeah, i think you see a, a, the, a younger generation come through and say well do we want this and then you've got succession issues and everything else that sort of plagues high street firms. And so and they probably do it a very different way. If different way. So it's, yeah, so it's a very interesting market to, to look at. And I'd have much sympathy for partners within SME law firms who are just have their hands tied. Maybe they want to innovate but they and adapt, but they've had almost unprecedented forces pushed against them from multiple angles. And but some have. And, I think and some have, yeah. To our point here about what makes a good CEO, MD, senior partner, leader, it's that having a vision that it can be better, making those faster decisions based on whatever information you have at the time. Well, we were talking about this, weren't we, the other day about within the legal sector with the the clients that we've ex- had exposure to, those that have taken the marketing quite seriously and put people in place, taken the decision to put people in place to to work on marketing seem to be the firms that have got themselves ahead and then from that position have leveraged that competitive advantage to be able to say well we're in a position now to acquire other firms or be successor practices and then that almost just kind of feeds the well you touch on a point i don't want to be too self-serving about this but if you're going to have a very clear vision of where you're taking your company you've got to make sure your marketing is aligned We've talked about internal marketing before in another podcast to make sure that internally it's aligned. But unless you're telling your stakeholders, whether they be your employees, your customers or shareholders, mm. unless you're telling them where you want to go, yeah. then you're not going to get there. And the way you do that is through some form of marketing, whatever you call it, internal or otherwise. Well, that probably maybe leads us on to the final one that we want to talk about, isn't it? It's strong, strong communication. Communication, skills. yeah. Well, that related to that quote uh, I talked about earlier from Tom Monaghan, who was quoted in the HBR article. That he says he's got these three stakeholders, the employees, the customers, and the shareholders. And if you listen to any one of them, then the company would go bust. Mm. You only listen to one of them. Because they each have... It, the, the beauty of that set of three is they all have a, a, a nice balanced tension of what they all need. Yeah. And But if you only look after one and not the others, then it take, takes you down a ruinous road. So he said in his communication... He has to keep them all in this sort of balance of equal dissatisfaction. Because <laughs> you can't please everybody mm. all the time. But if you're dissatisfying them all equally, then you've probably got the balance about right. Yeah. I thought, that's interesting. I wonder how many certainly smaller, medium-sized businesses think of it that way as that key triad of, of key stakeholders. 
i.e. are they all in that tension of all wanting a bit more but only eat as much as everybody else wants a bit more it's almost like you've got the you know the brass section and the percussion and the the wind <laughs> the the wind and the strings, strings yeah. I've got three I've got four <laughs> groups now <laughs> but you're the conductor you know as the as the CEO or the MD you're the conductor aren't you you're the one that's got to actually how do we you know bring in this voice now and bring in this voice now and how does it all come together to make it sound can't let anyone get like too a, loud or carried away with it all so and that's kind of where it is with the stakeholders yeah. you imagine if the shareholders had the upper hand then you'd prioritize profit but you wouldn't be able to keep your employees happy or or offer yeah. good prices to your customers if you're too customer oriented you'd have rock bottom prices everywhere and you wouldn't have any profits to do anything with either look after employees yeah. or shareholders and similarly if you looked after employees all the time and paid top dollar salaries and great benefits and all that your costs would be so high you'd never be able to compete so how do you keep you know this constructive state of dissatisfaction <laughs> was mm. his phrase and i think that's actually one of the you can imagine why that's yeah. such a key trait in a leader not only you've got to know where to go this is right, right down to the nitty-gritty how do we balance these competing yeah. needs and that's why communication and that point is so key to it is if, if you can't get that message across and be genuine yeah. and authentic then you're not going to be able to carry people with you and back to the other thing you know back to the point around vision as well if if you know what your vision is, if you know what your values are, if all these things are clearly articulated, it becomes a lot easier to communicate. Yeah. Because again, you've got a framework to do that. I think so many of these things go back to some of those core principles of vision and values yeah. and embodying that. And then that feeds through to all the other things we've talked about. How can you be decisive? How can you adapt when you need to? Have you got the tools around you, the people around you? You know, is it the right thing to do? given because we know given where we're going mm. and then how do we communicate it or are we using the right language are we using the same kind of you know have we got company language cultural language that we use to get the message across to people internally externally like I say yeah. all the stakeholders and tailor it as well i think one of the kids key bits of finding from the research which is not about frequency of communication and clarity only the, the killer bit in in the midst of all of that is being able to tailor it to the audience yeah. you've got to speak to the people you're talking to so that they want to hear what you're saying not just a tape recording of what you said last week yeah. to somebody else good well i mean we've picked five there it, we could have picked any other five and we've got others we could do i think there's another podcast in this yeah. somewhere to pick up some of the others some great examples and we can just immediately think of people we know as we go through these lists and I think it makes us reflect as well. You know, we, we had a bit of a chat, didn't we, in preparing for today's yeah. podcast. Where, where should we be taking some of our own medicine on this and, and learning from these podcasts and bits of research? So and It's worth saying as well um, that there's, we've both done the, the quick survey, haven't we, from... On the back of this research. On the back of this research, mm. um, the CEO Genome, I think it is. CEOgenome.com. Yeah. If you Put go out, there. It's, it's a great bit of marketing, actually. It's, um, it's a nice little self test you do online they send you an email once they've got your email address yep. they try and get you to buy their book and obviously if you're in the states you'd probably ring them up and say oh come in and advise my my top board or whatever so yeah go and have a look at that gives you a little bit of a self-assessment on on their traits and yeah get benchmarked against all of the uh, other people who've I'd done the tests so. how scientific that is we should get our two email i bet they say the same <laughs> we'll <see what laughs> in. compare next yeah. time we'll let you know yeah exactly tune in next week so there will be another uh, podcast on the behaviors uh, behaviors of successful ceos i think we've also got a podcast planned in the pipeline on uh, testing as well testing in the marketing sense you know ab or abcd testing and so on so stay tuned for that one if you're interested 
Good. Well, that's it for another podcast. Thank you very much for listening to the SME Growth Podcast from Wellmeadow. We're trying to come up with different stuff every week uh, that might be of interest to companies that are seriously looking to grow for the benefit of their owners and their managers. Hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, then please uh, send an email on to some of your mates, send them a text, drop them a link to the podcast and tell, tell them that we're here and we're producing content that might be interesting. Uh, if you don't like it, then tell us and we'll try and get better at it. In the meantime, good luck with your businesses. Mm-hmm.